When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. And I'm back. This is episode 114. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On this episode, I welcome back historian and author Nathan Amin. And we chat about the topic of his new book, Henry VII and the Pretenders. Then on Ask the Experts, Annie Garthway joins us to answer your questions on Cecily Neville. And lastly, I tell you all about the other Anne Boleyn. A special shout out to my newest patrons, Jody C., Tabby M., Jane C., and Mary Christine. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks for the ongoing support of my existing patrons as well. Your investment in me really does help cover all the necessary costs of running a podcast and the website. Now, if you'd like to show your support, please go to patreon.com slash tutors dynasty and click become a patron to see the options. And as a thank you, patrons receive all kinds of freebies like access to the tutor course, ebooks, exclusive patron only content, and much, much more. And you'll find links in the show notes. All right, without further ado, Nathan Amin. Nathan, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Now, we've had you on in the past to discuss King Henry VII, and inevitably, when he's discussed, conversation turns to the pretenders. So I'm going to do just a quick recap on the history behind it. Edward IV's sons were the princes in the tower. His eldest son, Edward, should have reigned as Edward V, but disappeared along with his brother, Richard. Now, their uncle, Richard III, proclaimed himself king prior to their disappearance. And then Richard III was killed at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, and Henry Tudor became Henry VII. So my first question to you is, why was it so controversial that Henry Tudor became king? Well, I mean, as people so often like to tell me, Henry VII essentially had no claim to the English throne. Um, you know, he certainly did have a blood connection through his Beaufort, um, Beaufort relations, his Beaufort descent, but certainly nobody was putting Henry Tudor on the throne of England when he was a youngster. You know, you just would never have foreseen this. Of course, the reason that this was able to come about is essentially because of what Richard III did in 1483, which is claim the throne for himself. Obviously, it's a very controversial topic. Did Richard III take the throne? You know, was he justified in taking the throne and accepting it when it was offered to him, or was he a usurper? Obviously, that's going to depend on what side of the debate you come down on Richard III. But the bottom line is, Richard III becoming king set in motion conspiracies that allowed somebody like Henry Tudor, who was a pretender at this stage, to rise to the, to, to the throne. 
Um, Henry Tudor is often considered to be the, the Lancastrian heir, if you will, you know, the Lancastrian claimant. But the truth is, is that Henry Tudor was propelled towards the throne on the back of Yorkist support. When Richard III took the crown, he effectively divided the House of York. You had two sides. You had one who were loyal to the princes in the tower, loyal to their father, Edward IV. You know, we can call them Edwardian Yorkists, if you will. And the other side who were loyal to Richard III, you know, the Ricardian Yorkists. All of the Edwardian Yorkists could not and would not support Richard. So they just simply found somebody else. And waiting in the wings, a man of the right age, uh, the right background, crucially unmarried, uh, which would play a big part um, in in solidifying that Yorkist support for him um, through the marriage with Elizabeth of York, was Henry Tudor. Right man, right place. You know, I don't necessarily consider myself a Ricardian. I'm pretty open-minded on the whole, you know, the whole princes in the tower, who had the right to the throne, whatever. I'm open-minded to it. But I do really feel terrible about what happened to Richard's body post-mortem. Why do you believe it was treated so poorly? Was it because of these factions, or do you see it as something else? The thing with the mistreatment of Richard's body, and this was something that was condemned at the time, uh, it certainly isn't something that we can just gloss over and say, oh, well, that's how they did things. That wasn't how they did things. Um, certainly bodies were mutilated post-battle. What I take a bit of issue with is this idea amongst some modern-day supporters that this was all Henry's doing. I think what's happened, there's no, no way, there's no circumstance whatsoever that Henry Tudor would have been it would have gone hey men you know stab that body up that would have lost henry so much support at a time when he desperately needed it i think what's happened is richard's body has been taken from the battlefield and it's been stripped and in that in that moment whichever of these of these men these soldiers who are doing the stripping perhaps they've seen some of the scoliosis and they've simply stabbed him. Uh, you know, that only takes a matter of seconds for that to happen. We, we can't assume that Henry Tudor was there himself personally overseeing uh, the degradation of Richard's body. Uh, certainly what we do know is that Henry, after the battle, gave a command to all of his men on the pain of death to leave all of Richard's men leave the battlefield. Uh, Henry said if any one of his soldiers tried to stop Richard's army from leaving the battlefield to return home, he would hang his own men. You know, Henry needed to be this unity candidate. He had to try and be the peacemaker. You know, that's not something that was made up by Shakespeare 100 years later. That's what Henry sought to be. So I just think this this incident where... um, Richard's body has sadly been degraded was probably just simply the actions of some of a handful of wayward soldiers. Um, it would be interesting to know if they got punished for doing that. Um, maybe more research is needed. 
something else that kind of caught me off guard in your book was that you had mentioned at Henry VII's coronation that Margaret Beaufort um, had loud lamentations. What was that all about? Um, I mean, there's a concept uh, in the medieval era of the fortune's wheel. Uh, the wheel keeps on turning. So at times you will be sitting on top of the wheel, on top of the world, but that wheel is going to turn and you're going to end up at the bottom again. But of course, don't be too despondent because the wheel can turn again and you can get to the top. It's actually quite a nice analogy for life. It's something I still use uh, myself in the modern day. I think Margaret, you know, she'd had a tough life. Uh, and even though at this point in her life, it seemed to be that she was now on top of the world, she knew that wheel is going to keep on turning. It, you know, she she had the foresight to know that, yes, her son is now king, but his problems were just starting. And quite frankly, as my book then goes on to show, Henry Tudor's reign was anything but peaceful. Uh, Margaret possibly simply knew the tough road that was ahead. And I suspect she was crying in fear for her boy. I mean, don't forget, she has just seen what's happened to Richard III. She's possibly looking at her son being crowned, thinking, this could be my boy in any one of the upcoming years of his reign. And she was right. I mean, Henry did come close at times to being overthrown. I'm so curious, um, you know, between the work that you've done on the Beauforts and Nicola Tallis's book on her as well, do you think she would have made a good queen? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, the problem is it's always difficult. That's a difficult question because simply of the context of the time. Um, was, would Margaret have been able to hold together all the different factions? Possibly. I mean... Despite what people want to say about Margaret today, there's no evidence of her at the time being this ruthless, uh, scheming woman who everybody hated. I mean, she was almost universally lauded for her character, for her presence, um, for her charity at the time. So, you know, she she wasn't a woman who who, who made enemies easily. So we, she certainly has that in her favour. Um, I mean, I'm probably inclined to think, yes, Margaret was at the end, at, by the end of her life, certainly a cherished woman, um, a woman with a great deal of ambition and charity in her heart. Um, there certainly have been a lot worse people on the throne before and after her life. When did the first pretender show up on the scene? Uh, so the first pretender, as we would know it, was Lambert Simnel. And rumours of Lambert Simnel and his appearance started in early 1487. Now, the key thing to consider, and a major reason why I personally believe Lambert Simnel was an imposter, is in the first year of Henry VII's reign, so 1486, there were a series of conspiracies taking place from men who had supported Richard III. You know, they had refused to be reconciled to Henry VII. One of those men was Francis Lovell, and another two of those men were the Stafford brothers. Now, these men 
were part of a conspiracy that was taking place in England in 1486 that revolved around the name Warwick. Now, Warwick referred to um, Edward, the Earl of Warwick, who was a nephew of Richard III and Edward IV, and he was locked in the tower at this time. He would, in fact, never leave the tower. He was a boy of unquestionable Yorkist royal blood. If you were looking around the kingdom in 1486 for somebody else to be king who had a claim other than Henry VII, it would have been Warwick. Now, in 1486, these plots all failed. And the reason they failed was that there simply was no Warwick to lead the armies, you know, to be the figurehead of these plots. You know, if you're trying to drum up support for a conspiracy and you're trying to do it in the name of Warwick, but Warwick is in, everyone knows he's locked in the tower, so you're being led by just a couple of random knights, that's very difficult to draw support to your side. So I think what's happened is they've learned they needed a figurehead. They couldn't use the real Warwick. He's in the tower. So the following year, the conspiracy starts again, early 1487. This time, at the front of the conspiracy, they have a 10-year-old boy, who we now know is Lambert Simnel, and they're telling everybody, this is Warwick. And suddenly, they're drawing support to their side. Um, So to answer your question, it's Lambert Simnel, early 1487. But we need to understand the context of the previous year to try to work out where this plot originated and why it originated. Can you help the listeners understand maybe how they thought they could get away with using this pretender while the Earl of Warwick was in the tower? What was the mindset at the time that they were able to trick some people with this? I mean, ultimately, you know, news moved a lot slower back then. Uh, People weren't as readily informed of goings on on a national scale you know they were not they were not um, privileged to have instant communications across the country i think it could be quite straightforward for an army to appear in the north of england with a boy in front of them saying this is the real warwick people will have taken that at face value um in london they knew this to be nonsense because as soon as Henry VII became aware there was a plot uh, with a 10-year-old boy at the front being claimed to be Warwick, Henry simply went into the Tower of London, brought up the real Edward of Warwick, and paraded him around his court. Um, He paraded him around um, Westminster Palace and and St Paul's Cathedral, And he made sure that everybody there in London, all the members of his council, you know, the nobility, they saw with their own eyes the real Warwick was safely under control. So whoever this boy, um, whoever this boy is that's now being fronted by a little conspiracy, they knew it to be fake. And of course, apart from one significant member of the nobility, and that's John de la Poole, another nephew of Richard III and Edward IV. Nobody defected from Henry VII's side. But the conspiracy did get to Ireland, 
And when the people of Ireland are confronted by John de la Poole, who is a known member of the nobility, a nephew of Richard III and Edward IV, Francis Lovell, an ex, you know, famously Richard III's best friend, and these two men are telling the Irish, this boy is genuinely Edward of Warwick, they're just going to take it at face value because why wouldn't they? You know, they, they don't have, again, they don't have the, the the ability at that time to simply pick up a phone and ring London and say, what's going on? They, they, they're just taking things at face value. They couldn't Google him and look up his picture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now you you know you mentioned Francis. Fran, excuse me. You mentioned Francis Lovell. Um, I, you know Michelle Schindler obviously wrote a book about him, and I feel like his story seems to have been kept quiet for so long. Why would you say his import his story is so important to be told? Because he obviously played a significant role in the rise of Richard III. He was present at Bosworth and he was almost that last little link between Richard's reign and the early Tudor reign. Um, Almost everybody else down the line, as soon as Bosworth was over, they were either dead on the battlefield or they simply reconciled and just became uh, subjects of the Tudor regime. You know, people... Richard Richard is dead. That part of that part of the history is over. Let's all move forward. Lovell didn't. So he is that little figure for the first two years of Henry VII's reign who reminds us of that Henry had come to the throne in very unusual circumstances by winning at Bosworth. You know, things weren't, as we would say in the UK, things were not all hunky dory for Henry VII. So he is a very important connection between those two reigns. Did Francis Lovell have any connection with Perkin Warbeck? Uh, he didn't because he, uh, well, I was, I was going to say he died by that point, but actually we don't know what happened to Francis Lovell. Uh, after after the collapse of the Lambert Simnel conspiracy, Lovell simply disappears. We don't, we don't know what happened to him. Um, and since we don't know what happened to him, we you know, we can't say that he he wasn't connected to Perkin Warbeck, but you know, th- there's no reason to also suggest that he was connected. Uh, he, he, I think, he probably died very shortly after after the collapse of the Lambert Simnel conspiracy in 1487. Now, my memory might be wrong here, but was it about 1486 when Perkin Warbeck first showed up on the scene? Uh, 1491. Oh, I was way off. <laughs> so, so, so the, the, the Lambert similar conspiracy was 1487, uh, and then everything was quiet for a bit. And in 1491, suddenly in Ireland, Perkin Warbeck appears. What's very interesting about the Perkin Warbeck scenario is that his chief supporter was a chap called John Taylor. John Taylor was one of these rare um, figures who was loyal to Richard III and refused to reconcile to Henry VII. So rather than just, you know, getting his head down and just cracking on with the job, he decided to leave England and move to France in exile. He wasn't willing to swear loyalty to Henry VII. He wrote a letter back to England in 1490 where he says something along the lines of, watch out for next year. 
someone is coming. Like he's almost preempting the arrival of Perkin Warbeck. Um, but yeah, the, the first time that Perkin Warbeck physically appears um, on the scene is 1491 when he suddenly surfaced in Cork, Ireland. And that was the same year that Henry, the, the future Henry VIII was born. Uh, it was, yeah. Yeah, okay. And is it true that it was, I want to say a couple years later or something, that Henry VII named his son Henry Duke of York to offset the whole Perkin Warbeck thing? Yeah, that was uh, 1494, November. Um, by this point, Perkin Warbeck was claiming to be the Duke of York. Um, Henry VII quite wisely decided to create his own Duke of York hoping to bond loyalty of any dissidents to his own son, the young prince. Uh, and he's, you know, Henry VII, for all of this modern idea that he was a miser, the one thing Henry VII was not was a miser. He was avaricious. He loved to bring money in. But by God, could he spend money? Um, you know, money came in, money went out. And in November 1494, he held a magnificent soiree in London to mark his son's um, ascension to the dukedom of York. You know, jousts, tournaments, um, feasting. It was a magnificent event and a very political one as well. Is it fair to say that Perkin Warbeck was really... Um, the most dangerous pretender um, or the biggest threat to Henry VII's throne? I'm going to say no, for the simple fact that ultimately Warbeck didn't really do much. Um, he was he was a, definitely a thorn in Henry's side. He tried to invade a handful of times, but ultimately he, he didn't really accomplish much. Um, you know, he didn't gain much support within England, uh, he was certainly someone who Henry was um, preoccupied with catching and suppressing and defeating because at the end of the day, you don't want to pretend to rattling around on the outside of your kingdom. The fact is a Lambert Simnel, well, not Lambert Simnel himself, as he was just a boy of 10, but Lambert Simnel's supporters then managed to bring Henry to the field of battle. And as history has shown... Battles can be turned can be turned on the slightest of things, a change in the weather, a timely defection, um, you know, a, a boggy field. Things can suddenly change very quickly in a battle, as Henry himself had witnessed at Bosworth two years earlier. Who's to say that once you've got the king to the battlefield, anything can happen? And at the Battle of Stokefield in 1487... Anything could have happened. That's the closest Henry really got to being deposed. So I think the Simnel was the more dangerous, if shorter lived threat to Henry. I'm curious, what was the most interesting thing you found while doing your research for this book? Um, it's just really learning the story from Henry VII's vantage point. You know, we all know the basic story of Warbeck. We know the basic story of um, Lambert Simnel. Not nobody's ever really concentrated on what Henry was up to during these years. So it was just fascinating to watch how Henry was defending his kingdom. You know, things such as when 
when he had when he had wind that an army was invading England in 1487, he quickly left London behind and he went straight to Kenilworth Castle in the Midlands, this great old Lancastrian castle, and he based himself there, right in the heart of his country, um, ready to punch whenever somebody invaded. He learned from Richard. He moved quicker than Richard III did. When enemies were coming into his country, Henry was straight on the attack. Uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't hiding away. He wasn't backing down. He wasn't waiting for them to come to him. For example, he's learned in May um, 1487 that an army's landed, or early June, an army's landed in northern England. Straight away, he's got his army and he's going towards them. He's, he's not going to hang around. He's not going to wait back. You know, he had seen what happens to kings who get deposed. That wasn't going to be him. So I find it really interesting just to see how offensive Henry VII always was. You know, this 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 idea of him being this boring accountant king, um, this king who was not himself a great military figure, but to see him, how he organised and how he went on the attack was quite fascinating for me. One of the things I couldn't help but notice, and maybe it's my researcher mind, but I noticed that you reference the Croyland Chronicles quite often in your book. So can you explain to everybody um, who was Croyland? What were these chronicles exactly? And how trustworthy are these statements from it? Um, the Croyland is probably the best source we have for the early reign of Henry VII and some of the reigns that came before him. I don't think we know for definite who the Chronicle was. Uh, it was evidently someone connected with Croyland Abbey uh, in the east of England. Uh, many churches and institutions did keep their own chronicles. You know, these chronicles were not meant for publication. They, they weren't supposed to be widely read. What's interesting about the Croyland one is that it's written by somebody who clearly had access to the higher levels of power. You know, um, there is a suggestion that it was a chap called Bishop John Russell, who was, I think, a chancellor or somebody very high up in the in the the government of Henry, uh, Edward the Fourth. He knew the reign of Richard III, and he lived for the first couple of years of Henry the Seventh's reign. Is it, is it accurate? No, none of the medieval chronicles are completely accurate. Is it is it a fairly good source that most of which can be corroborated? Yes, it is. Um, and it's absolutely um, priceless for historians to try and understand what was going on during this mid-1480s period. You also mentioned Polydor Virgil, who I know we've talked about before. Um, but can you tell everybody a little bit about him? Maybe they haven't heard about him. Maybe it's their first time listening. Uh, Polydor Virgil was an Italian humanist, I think from Urbino in Italy. And he was basically recruited by Henry VII to come over to England and write a history of England. Now, Henry VII had effectively grown up abroad. Uh, he was a Renaissance man. He had a great interest in how other European cultures were operating. So he liked to hire foreigners, effectively, to come to England and bring their skills, because Henry wanted to really position England back on the global map again by proving how great he was. 
you know, what, what the Italians are up to, what the French are up to, what the Germans are up to. He also wanted that for himself. So Paul Adolf Virgil got recruited as part of this programme. Um, Virgil has, I think his reputation at the moment is a bit un- unwarranted. Uh, he seems simply as this Tudor propagandist, this man who was hired by Henry to be a spin doctor and to basically whitewash the Tudor reign and make everything look wonderful and rosy. If you actually read the work of Polydor Virgil, he's not as pro-Henry or for that matter anti-Richard III as many people actually would believe. Um, It is a favourable account of Henry, but where he needs to, Polydor Virgil sticks the boot in. Uh, He criticises Henry, for example, for his um, his avarice at the end of his reign. He praises Richard III. Um, you know, I think he's a lot more measured than people would give him credit for. But it's a fascinating source, you know, possibly one of the earliest um, biography-type exercises we have. And he was basically the the prototype almost for the later chronicles that really started to get developed during the reign of Henry VIII, Edward Hall, um, Hall and Shed, which eventually takes us up to people such as William Shakespeare. I mean, Polydor Virgil was fantastic at his craft. I love um, chronicles and such, and I feel like so often um, listeners don't understand that these things primarily are in the public domain. You can access these chronicles and books online. I mean, I just use Google Books. I don't know, you know, if you're looking maybe at the original documents, but uh, it's available um, if you want to look at them yourselves and dive a little deeper. Uh, What I would recommend people use is there's a website called archive.org. I think the idea behind it is, is it's an American charity who believes in basically getting hold of all out-of-copyright documents and sticking them up online. Uh, so if you were ever to type in Polydor Virgil, archive.org, into into your favourite uh, search engine, you will come across these, these documents. And this goes for all sorts of medieval documents, you know, chancery rules, uh, ambassador sources, I think there's a website called medievalgenealogy.co.uk or something along them lines. If you just type in medieval genealogy, you'll find the website and they've put pulled together many, many sources all onto one website just for you to click through. Um, as you say, you know, the, the, as long as you know what you're searching for, you should be able to find a lot of these things quite quickly because most of this work was catalogued in the Victorian period. All the chronicles, all the... Um, the patent rules, you know, all this type of work was catalogued and written in book form in the Victorian period. And of course, that is now out of copyright. So it's very easy to find most of these sources these days. We're so lucky to have this stuff at our fingertips, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, in, in this, in, you know, in this day and age, if people are writing books while working, you can't spend all your time living in a library, traveling around the country to archives and so on. You can do the majority of the work from home now in your spare time, uh, which is what I do. You know, then, you know, you can then save your your trips to the archives and things like that for 
you know, certain days, you could plan your life around it. Um, it makes me sweat a little bit thinking how they must have worked back in, in the Victorian period, you know, the sheer amount of work they must have had to do to trawl through the archives themselves for every little bit of information that we now just take for granted. You know, if I want to look at Polydor Virgil, I'll just quickly find the document I've got on my hard drive that I took down from the internet. Um, obviously, they weren't able to do that back then, but I guess that's why a lot of these historians are writing perhaps one book in their life because it was a lifetime right. of work. I can't even imagine. Ugh. Nathan, oh my gosh, it's been so fun chatting with you. I feel like this was just a teaser. We could probably talk for two hours on this topic, but I kind of want to wrap up by you telling everybody um, why you think that they should pick up your book, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders. Henry VII's reign has got an unfair reputation for being boring. Uh, he has suffered from being the king who came between Richard III and Henry VIII, the two most famous uh, and drama-filled reigns in English history. But believe me when I say they cannot compete with all of the intrigue, the plots, the conspiracies that took place during the reign of Henry VII. This is a very exciting book to read. And where can they find you and your book, Nathan? Um, you can find me on Twitter, just under my name, Nathan Amin, or on Facebook under Nathan Amin Author. They're the two places I tend to be most uh, most busy, shall we say, promoting my stuff. And your book is available on Amazon. Is it at Waterstones, Barnes & Noble? Uh, it's available wherever you get your books. Um, Amazon, uh, bookshop.org. If you are from outside the UK, I recommend a website called Book Depository. This is a website that sends books worldwide from the UK free of charge. And you don't need to wait for release dates in the USA, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, so on. You can just get the book now for free from the UK today. I highly recommend it. I've used that in the past as well. And Nathan, how do we, what do we got to do to get you on TikTok? I will not be on TikTok. I have a hard enough time keeping up to date with uh, old people apps such as <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I just joined TikTok because I thought, okay, this is the next thing, right? I, I have to join TikTok. It's a whole new world and I feel too old for it, obviously. <laughs> Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate you. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now, Ask the Expert. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph, and I'm here with author Annie Garthwaite. Annie is the author of Cecily, her debut novel about Cecily Neville. Welcome, Annie. Nice to, nice to talk to you, Steph. Hi. Oh, thank you so much for coming. So before we get started, given that this is your first book, do you want to tell us a little bit about how it came about? Yeah, I guess. Well, it started a very, very long time ago when I was still in school. And I had a very, very enthusiastic history teacher. And we were learning about the Wars of the Roses. And I think he realized that I was captured and interested. And he just kept throwing books at me about the Wars of the Roses, both um, both history books and novels. And that was it. I was hooked, completely hooked. And I think my first passion was really for Cecily's 
famous son, Richard III. And uh, I was just intrigued by the whole did he, didn't he story. What sort of a man was he? But I guess as I got older and as I grew up and I learned more about Richard and I read more about Richard and about the wars, I became fascinated by the women around him. You know, these great, powerful women, Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret of Anjou and Margaret Beaufort. And yet there seemed to me always to be a woman missing, someone I wasn't seeing a full picture of. And and that was Cecily, Richard's mother. And I became obsessed with her and fascinated by her. And especially as I started to, you know, in my working life, navigating in a world that was very male-dominated and learning how to wield influence and power in a male-dominated world, I, became, I felt much closer to Cecily because I think that's what, that's what she had to do. You know, she was... You know, if we think of who she was, she was the most remarkable woman. She lived for 80 years through one of the most tumultuous periods of English history. She was born in the year of Agincourt. She died in the early reign of the Tudors. She led her family through civil war. And for most of her life, she was among the most, if not the most powerful women in the country. And... She was very much uh, a force to be reckoned with on the political scene. And she was an expert at wielding power in a male-dominated environment, it seemed to me. So I guess if you'd asked me in my 20s, what would my novel be about? Because I'd already determined by then that I would write a novel. I would probably have said it would be about Richard III. But, the but you know, by the time I was in my... 30s and 40s, it was certainly Cecily for me. Well, if that is not a great introduction, I don't know what would be because now I am dying to read your book. I can't wait. Um, And the first thing we're going to kick things off with then is a question from Crystalline. And she would like to just, if you could just tell us a little bit about Cecily's background or family history, and maybe if she had any royal blood or where she came from. Yes, she absolutely, absolutely had royal blood. She was a direct descendant of John of Gaunt, um, who was the third son of Edward III, through his marriage to Catherine Swinford. John of Gaunt married Catherine Swinford when they were both in their late middle age, but they'd had a long-running relationship beforehand, an affair, if you like, um, which gave rise to several children, one of whom was Joan Beaufort, um, Cecily's mother. So at the point when Cecily's mother, Joan, was born, she was a bastard child. She was born in 1379. John and Catherine finally married in 1396 when John was about 17 years old. And John and her siblings were legitimated by the Pope in the year of the marriage. And then by Richard II, John of God's uncle, um, the, a year later. And that meant, that sort of legitimization by Richard II, meant that they were no longer legally bastards. They could hold position, they could inherit, inherit land as if that they were legitimate children. 
But those letters patent that um, that legitimated them didn't specifically include them in the line of succession, but it didn't specifically exclude them either. So it's it's kind of you could argue it both ways. And then later in 1407, when Henry the Fourth is on the throne, John Beaufort, Cecily's uh, John's brother, asks Henry the Henry the Fourth to clarify what was in those letters patent. And those letters patent are reissued, but with the insertion of a few very important words: "Accepta dignitate regale." Basically, you can inherit whatever lands and titles you like except the royal dignity. You Effectively, the Beauforts were then um, excluded from the royal line. So a royal scent of royal blood, absolutely, but with a legitimate claim towards the throne of England, probably not. Um, and certainly when both Richard, Duke of York, and subsequently Edward IV made their claim to the throne, neither of them referenced Cecily's descent. They claimed their descent through Richard, Duke of York's mother's line, back to Lionel, Duke of Clarence, who was the second son of John of Gaunt. So there's no reason to think that Cecily felt herself to be in line to the throne, but she certainly felt herself to be very close to the throne. And now you mentioned her husband, Richard, Duke of York. Um, Our followers, the Plantagenets, were wondering what was the relationship like between Cecily and Richard? And how did they come about to be married? Were they paired together? And then how was their marriage once they actually did become married? Mm. It's fascinating, this marriage. Um, When Cecily's mother, Joan, married Ralph, Earl of Westmoreland, they had a bevy of children. I think I'm right in saying 13 children. And they made a series of absolutely dazzling marriages for their children. They all married up. They all married into the aristocracy of of England. And they mostly did that by buying the wardship of young nobles who had been orphaned, but often because of their parents had been involved in rebellion, largely. So they would acquire their wardships and then marry their children to those, individual, to those individuals and thereby bring the, those lands and estates into the family. And that's exactly what happened with Cecily and Richard. So Richard's father um, had been executed for treason in 1415, for treason against Henry V. So although Richard was the heir to the Dukedom of York and the Earldom of Cambridge, he was in a very precarious position. Ralph Neville, Cecily's father, bought his wardship in 1423 and within weeks of bringing Richard into his household, married him to Cecily. And Cecily at the time was about eight years old and Richard would have been about 12 Now, that sounds very shocking to us in the 21st century, but it would have been extremely normal and expected and commonplace 
to Cecily to have an arranged marriage that young. It would have been what would be expected by her. So, and I think as she grew older, she would have come to appreciate that this was a very good marriage. You know, she'd seen her elder brothers and sisters marry extremely well. She would have had expectations of a good marriage. And here is Richard, he's heir to the Earldom of Cambridge, heir to the Dukedom of York. And then two years after they're married, when Cecily is 10, Richard's maternal uncle, Edward Mortimer, dies childless. And Richard then becomes the inheritor of an absolutely vast land holdings through the Mortimer family. So even better. But it's still Ralph is somewhat taking a risk here because although Richard has a legitimate claim to all of those things, to secure them, he's got to win the favour of the king. Henry VI, and that's by no means certain. You know, he's under suspicion because he's a traitor's son, and he's doubly under suspicion once he inherits from his maternal uncle because through that claim, he actually has a a stronger claim to the throne, arguably, than Henry VI. So Richard does come into his... um, he does come into his right to the Dukedom of York in 1431. He does win the royal favour to that point. But throughout his life, he's under suspicion um, because of this claim to the throne that he, that he has, and we know how that works out. So what do we know of their marriage? It was extremely long. It gave Cecily what she would have expected a marriage to give her in terms of of influence, prestige, and power. All of the indications are that they were happily married. We don't know for certain, but they seem to have spent time together whenever they could. When Richard was posted to France, when he was posted to Ireland, Cecily travelled with him. They themselves had a large number of children, a large family, She seems to have been trusted by him to conduct business. They seem to have a very strong partnership, if you like. There's no evidence that Richard ever sired any bastards, so it seems likely that he was faithful. And if I'm now putting my novelist's hat on and saying, well, how do we interpret all of that? I envisage between the two of them a real partnership of equals, both very ambitious, both politically astute, both um, clear-headed about what needed to be done and working in partnership through the whole of their lives. And certainly her grief for him when he died seems to have been very real and she never marries again. Well, now, despite the influence and the power that you spoke of, their their strong partnership, um, it has been widely speculated that Cecily did have an extramarital affair. So our next question comes from our fearless leader, Rebecca Larson. Is there any truth to the possible illegitimacy of Edward IV? As a novelist, I would absolutely love it to be the case. I mean, what a plot twist that would be, wouldn't it? Sure. And certainly 
<laughs> Certainly I started out when I was writing the book looking for hard evidence of of um, Edward's bastardy and Cecily's affair. And the, the promise that I made to myself in writing the novel was that I would be as true to the historical fact as I could be. Now, so many facts are very much, uh, you know, so many facts are unknown. So at that point, you have to look at what is likely and what is probable. And I had to come to the conclusion that Edward is almost certainly Richard, Duke of York's son. So let me explain why I think that. So the, the accusation of, Richard, of um, Edward's bastardy recently came to light in a TV documentary in which the historian Michael Jones asserted that Richard, Duke of York, was not with Cecily in Rouen at the crucial time when Edward would have been conceived. The doc- that documentary says that Edward, based on his birth date of the 28th of April, 1442, must have been conceived between the 1st and the 8th of August the previous year. Now, that's very precise, a window of one week. And you and I both know that pregnancies vary in length. Children, babies can be born prematurely. Babies can be born late. You know, that that window of opportunity, if you like, must have been wider than that. So it seems realistic for me to assume that perhaps he could have been conceived anywhere between 15th of July, 15th of August, let's say. So the question was, we know that Cecily was in Rouen during that period. Where was Richard? Now, there was a campaign going on uh, in Pontois, which was, you know, a considerable jet travel time from Rouen, and we know that he was involved in that, we know that he was present. So was he in Rouen or was he in Pontoise? So let's look at what we know. Cecily and Richard arrived in Rouen from England in late June of that year. They celebrated their arrival in the cathedral in Rouen on the 1st of July. By the 13th, 14th of July, Richard and his captain, John Talbot, were mustering troops and they marched for Pontoir on the 15th of July, arriving the following day. Crucially, though, while Talbot remained in, um, in Pontoir for some time, Richard, Duke of York, was back in Rouen on the 1st of August. He was away for only two weeks. He came back from Pontoir after achieving a significant victory when they attacked the French royal camp and the French king... Charles the Second, Charles the Seventh fled. He came back to Rouen, waving the flag and saying, "What a brilliant job I've done!" And it looks likely that he, from that point, actually remained in Rouen and left military matters to Talbot, while Richard busied himself in Rouen, securing supply lines for the ongoing campaign against the French, and negotiating a treaty, a truce with the Duke of Brittany. And we know that on 8th of August, he was in Rouen because he presided over um, an estate general of Normandy to secure financial aid for the campaign. So that was certainly, to my mind, the time when Edward could have been conceived. And there's no reason to think that Richard wasn't in Rouen with Cecily for at least one or two weeks of that crucial period for Edward's conception. 
And then I have to think about it. So those are the facts. And then again, I put my novelist's imagination to play. And I look at everything that we know about Cecily's character. She was ambitious. She had a profound sense of her own position, of her own dignity. Um, She appears in every other respect to have been loyal and faithful to Richard, Duke of York. I just can't see how a woman like Cecily would have had a sudden affair with a nobody. And the rumours the rumors of the affair are really put about by Richard Earl of Warwick when he rebels against Cecily's son, Edward IV, years later. And this rumour emerges of Elizabeth having, a camp, having an affair with an archer called Blaybourne. Well, I just really do wonder how the great Duchess of York has an affair with an archer. And also looking at the troop records for the troops that were positioned in Rouen at that time, there's no mention of any archer called Blaybourne anywhere. He could certainly have slipped through the net. There may have been, he may have been there, he may have not. But the, the evidence just doesn't stack up. I think I prefer that answer. I'm glad to hear that that he was born not out of wedlock. Um, okay, so switching gears then to another of Cecily's children, we're going to give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites, Richard III, um, Douglas Breeden, who, thank you for your question, Douglas. We always love to hear from you. He wanted to know, was he close with his mother? Um, what was their relationship like? I have asked so many historians this question because it's so important to me to know. And they all shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't really know. We don't really know. There's there's not a great deal of correspondence between the two of them, but what there is is, is very affectionate. It's They're often talking about business, but there's a sort of dutiful affection in the letters between the two of them. They exchange favours, they do business for each other. But there's there's no evidence of any great favouritism towards him. He was her last son, perhaps the son most like his father. So when I think about her relationship with Richard, I have to fall back almost exclusively on my novelist's imagination. And I imagine him being her final son, the last child that they have together, and that that must have meant something to her. And ultimately, in terms of securing the throne for her family, he was her last hope. But I don't think he was her favourite. I think Edward IV was her favourite. And the reason, I, the most compelling reason, I think, for my believing that is when, after her, after her husband has been killed and it looks like, you know, everything she has fought for and striven for is coming to a terrible end. And Edward, who's 18 years old at that time, is in Wales, gathering troops, and there's the devastating defeat of of Richard, Duke of York at Wakefield. Edward is trying to get to London. It looks incredibly bleak. Cecily sends Richard and George away to Burgundy 
alone. She does not go with them. She sends them in the care of others. She stays in London to wait to see what will happen with Edward. And I can't help but think that as a mother, you know, Margaret, Margaret of Anjou was at the gates of London. She had every expectation to think that if her young sons were found alive, that they would be killed by Marguerite and, and, and Henry VI. So she had them taken away, but she did not go with them. She sent them overseas to a very uncertain future alone. And she remained in England to keep the door open for Edward. And I just think I'd see that as evidence of a favoritism towards him. So now we've discussed Edward, her son Edward, and her son Richard. And we can't move on to another topic without touching on the alleged bizarre demise of her son George, Duke of Clarence, uh, potentially having been drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. What do you think she felt during this experience? Or is there any records of her reactions to this happening? It's it's terrible. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? That she would, as a woman and as a mother, have had to see one son declaim and, ex- and eventually execute another. Um, and it's hard to imagine what her feelings must have been on that, about that situation. But, and again, I speak now with my novelist's head on, not the historian's head. I appreciate your novelist's head, though. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It seems to me, you know, George had been a bit of a pain, to put it mildly. And he had rebelled against Edward on several occasions. You know, if anybody had pushed his luck, it was George. And I think finally Cecily may have come to the point, you know, she was above everything else a realist, and she was above everything else a survivor, and she was above everything else the matriarch of the House of York. And that meant keeping Edward on the throne. And if George threatened that, and if George threatened to destroy it, I think that in the end, though not happily and not with any peace of mind, she would have submitted to that execution. But it's hard to imagine what scar it would have left on her soul, I think. Of course, as a mother... For sure. Um, And that last question, again, thank you, was from Nancy Buchanan. I'm sorry I didn't mention that before. Uh, You had mentioned earlier your kind of affinity for the stories of the women during this time. So I think that you'll appreciate uh, Michelle Schindler's question now. Because she wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit. We focus so often on Cecily's sons because... They're the ones with the stories. They're the ones that make all the history. But can you tell us anything about her daughters or any the relationships that she had with them, maybe? Or if there are some lesser known stories that might be interesting to us since beca- since we do focus so much on the men. Mm, yeah, I can. And again, wouldn't it be lovely if more had been recorded and there's, there's actually very little. So she has three daughters she her, her first child is Anne, and it's interesting. You know, she and Richard were married at eight. They started their physical lives together. Let's say at about when she was about sixteen, 
but she didn't have a first living child for eight years after that when she was 24, which must have been a period of great worry and concern because the one thing women were expected to do that time was, uh, you know, was to breed. And finally, when she did have a living child, it was not a son, it was a daughter. But we see no indication that that was at all a disappointment to Cecily. Um, she appears to have valued that child. She then went on to have a son that, that died very young, and then she went on to have Edward. She subsequently, so that first daughter was Anne. She subsequently had Elizabeth, and subsequently to that, Margaret. She made extremely good marriages for all of them from a political point of view. Anne was married to Henry Holland, who was the heir to the Dukedom of Exeter. Um, she married Elizabeth to John de la Pole, who was Duke of Suffolk. And the most glorious marriage of the three, of course, was um, when Margaret was married to Charles, Duke of Burgundy in 1468. There is one thing that makes me think that Cecily took care of her daughters, for sure, and I'll tell you this story because I think it's a great exemplar. So she married Anne to Henry Holland, who, from everything that I read and understand, was not the nicest of men, and it was not the happiest of marriages. They were married at the age of five. They would have when when Anne was was five. He was a little older. Um, and they began their lives together in much the same way that Cecily did with Richard at the age of about 15 or 16. But they were not happily married. Henry Holland is reputed to have been a bit of a brute, and certainly he was always on the side of Marguerite of Anjou, so they became enemies, if you like. After Edward IV became king, Cecily arranged for Anne to secure, obviously uh, Henry Holland was attainted as a, as a traitor and an enemy to the crown, but Cecily arranged for Anne to hold on to the, the, the lands and titles that came with that marriage. And there's very specific legislation put in place to secure Anne's future so that she could be secure and independent and have possession of her daughter and not be dependent upon her husband. And certainly, eventually, Anne and Henry Holland were divorced. I think Cecily had a great appreciation of women's need to be financially and politically secure. Certainly when she became a widow herself, she made very sure that she kept hold of a very good income and, and a very good um, set of lands. And she did exactly the same for her daughter. And I see that as a very practical example of love and commitment and an understanding of the shared vulnerability that women had. And now you've mentioned Margaret of Anjou a few times now, so I'm glad to actually finally be able to ask you this question uh, from our friend The Main Thing. He wanted to know, what was her relationship with Margaret of Anjou? Oh my goodness, what a pairing. Cecily Neville and Marguerite of Anjou. They're so similar in so many ways, I think. They're both political, they're both ambitious, I guess, they, they both face 
real adversity in their lives and respond to it in very different ways. And I just find the two of them intriguing. Um, so they first met in 1445 when Marguerite was en route to England for her marriage to Henry VI. And Cecily and Richard hosted Marguerite at Rouen before she took ship um, for England. So she spent Easter with them. And at that point, Marguerite was on the cusp of 15, which was about half of Cecily's age at that point. Cecily was about 30 or 31. And I imagine them, you know, Marguerite was a surprising choice, I suppose, to be Queen of England. She wasn't particularly prestigious. She was of the royal family through the king's uh, through the king's wife, but you know it wasn't the great prestigious marriage that you might have expected for the King of England. So I do imagine Cecily approaching that first meeting, thinking, "What am I going to make of this young girl? You know, what what what's she going to be like?" And I really enjoyed writing the scene when they first meet on the dockside at Pontoise, and they sail together down to Rouen, down the river to Rouen. So it seems that they, during that Easter period, formed at least a friendly acquaintanceship, let's say. I don't think they were ever bosom buddies, but they seem to have got on, they seem to have been amicable, and they seem to have maintained that amicability despite the dispute between disputes between their husbands but then Cecily had the gift for staying on good terms with everyone she was very astute and political in that regard so she would have been very careful to stay on the right side of someone as powerful as the Queen but my novelist's imagination again can't help but think that she would have come to feel some vitriol for Marguerite given Marguerite's enmity towards Richard, her very clear enmity towards him. Nonetheless, she was prepared to go and humble herself to Marguerite on Richard's behalf at the point when Richard was very, very, very out of favour with Henry VI and everything was looking extremely bad in that relationship. Cecily humbled herself. She went to meet Marguerite at the shrine at Walsingham at the time when... Marguerite was finally pregnant with her child and begged for the restoration of her husband into the royal favour. And there's some fascinating correspondence between the two of them. Oh, well, we only have the correspondence from Cecily to Marguerite. We don't have any of Marguerite's replies. But we do get the sense that Marguerite listened to Cecily's plea But I have to conclude that she didn't do a great deal about it. Certainly Richard wasn't restored to Marguerite's favour and Marguerite doesn't seem to have interceded with the king to help Richard. So I can't help but think that Cecily would quietly resent Marguerite. But I also think that she might have sympathised with her You know, when she met that 15-year-old girl in Pontoire and and knew that Marguerite was going to England to marry Henry VI, 
Oh, she must have had some sympathy for that. And she must have had some sympathy for a woman who remained childless for so long, was burdened with such a difficult and challenging husband, was personally under threat. You know, one can imagine a world where if circumstances hadn't brought them head to head and into adversity, where they could have had a lot of in common and could have been friends. I like to think that that's the case. Sure. And then it's always easier to picture that kind of love, hate, keep your enemies close kind of relationship, right? Um, So we can't let you go without one more question. We have to just chat a little bit about the always controversial Elizabeth Woodville, right? Mm -hmm, So how do you think this question is from Crystal and again, thank you. How did she, how do you think that Cicely viewed the union between Elizabeth and Edward? Well, let's look at what we know. Edward announced that he had secretly married Elizabeth in September 1464 at a meeting of the Great Council in Reading Abbey. And I think he was pushed to announce it then because Warwick arrived at that meeting and declared that he'd successfully negotiated a French marriage for Edward. And Edward was on the spot and had to confess at that point that he'd secretly married Elizabeth Woodville much to the consternation of the Earl of Warwick, who was, you know, therefore made to look a bit of a fool in the eyes of the French because he'd been negotiating for a marriage for his king who was already married. It's likely that Cecily was there at Reading. She probably wasn't in London, certainly, because the plague was present in London at the time and she would have kept away from that. So it's likely that she was in Reading. And I think she would have been profoundly shocked and surprised Now, the only um, sources that we have for her response, really, are Thomas Moore, writing much later in the Tudor period, who cites Cecily as the principal instigator of attempts to annul the marriage between Edward and Elizabeth Woodville. But, you know, he's writing very much, Moore's writing very much for a Tudor audience, so we have to take what he says with a little bit of a pinch of salt. And certainly... I don't believe there are any contemporaneous evidence of attempts to annul the marriage, and certainly within a month or so it was commonly accepted in the country and and everyone moved on. An earlier written source about Cecily's reaction is Mancini in 1483, when he claimed that Cecily had been so outraged by the marriage that she claimed Edward wasn't her husband's son. Now, again, Mancini was, you know, this is several years later, after the events, Mancini wasn't there in Reading when the marriage was announced. He's writing, you know, writing 20 years later. And it seems to me that he's perhaps conflating stories and getting confused. And after all, if Cecily had made such a dramatic public statement at that point, In Reading in 1464, if she had declared publicly that Edward was not Richard, Duke of York's son and that she was prepared to go into a public inquiry to prove it, it's absurd to me to think that the ambassadors at the time wouldn't have talked about that in their correspondence, wouldn't have made much of that. And also that Warwick 
wouldn't have cited it as conclusive evidence of of Edward's bastardy when he rebelled in 1469, and he didn't. And certainly he was in Reading at the crucial time, and if, if Cecily had made such a statement, she'd have not, he'd have known about it. So to me, I think it's highly unlikely that she would have been pleased about it. She certainly came from a family who always believed in marrying up, and Edward was very definitely marrying down. So she would have seen it as a, a waste, I think. The idea of a French marriage would have appealed to her, marrying into the French into French power. She knew, on the other hand, she knew Jaquetta, Elizabeth Woodville's mother of old. They were old friends. They'd have been together for quite some time in, in, um, in Rouen they were, when they, both of their husbands were posted in France. She may have been interested in a biddable English queen with a family that would be in Edward's pockets. You know, the Woodville family, once Elizabeth was queen, uh, it was Elizabeth was queen, were grandized by Edward IV. And she might have looked at that and have thought, well, you know, Warwick is a very overmighty subject. It wouldn't be a bad thing to have another balance on the other side of that. Who knows? But I do think that the one thing she would have really hated would be the deceit. I think Cecily is a woman who likes to know what is going on and likes to have a finger in every pie and be involved in every decision. So I can't help but think, and again, this is my novelist's mind, I can't help but thinking that she would be absolutely furious that Edward would take himself off and marry some someone, anyone, without consult- consulting her opinion on the matter, really. But certainly she seemed to have accepted it in, after the fact. She had a very amicable relationship with Elizabeth Woodville while she was queen. She was godmother to their daughter Cecily. It, you know, they were not enemies, well, that's really helpful to know, too. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much, Annie, for answering all of our questions. I really can't wait to read your book. Your your novelist mind, as you mentioned a couple of times, has certainly captured me. And I'm sure I can say the same for all, all of our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us. And of course, thank you to our listeners um, for writing in. As always, we couldn't do this without you. So now is the time, Annie, where I would like to give you the floor to give you a chance to plug your stuff. So when and how can we expect to get our hands on this book? And how can we get in touch with you or follow you in the meantime? Yeah. Oh, well, the book is going to publish on the 29th of July this year, less than three months away. I'm hopelessly excited about it. It's being published by uh, Penguin Random House. Um, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, you know, all of those usual online places, Amazon, Waterstones, bookshops.org, wherever you would normally buy books. Or please go to your local independent bookshop and pre-order it there. Um, They're taking pre-orders right now. Um, In terms of following me, um, perhaps the best place to start would be at my author website, which is www.amazon.com anniegarthwaite.com and also I'm on Twitter at just Annie Garthwaite um, and on Instagram also just at Annie Garthwaite and on Facebook at Annie Garthwaite Writer 
So please, please do get in touch. You can email me via my website too. Please get in touch. I love to hear from people. I can't, you know, I'm happy talking about Cecily every hour of the day. So I'm very happy to correspond about her too. And I'm sure all of our conversation today has sparked some more questions and some more interests because, you know, like you said earlier, we don't really talk about her very much and there's clearly a lot to say. So thank you so much for joining us. Everybody go get her book when, uh, when it comes out and thanks again. We'll talk to you soon, Annie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And now a brief history. There was another woman named Anne Boleyn at the court of Henry VIII. She was Thomas Boleyn's sister, though older or younger, we cannot say. Unless a woman was the eldest daughter of a high-ranked noble family, her date of birth was usually not recorded. Likewise, we know nothing of her youth or education, though we know from later letters that she was literate. She married Sir John Shelton around 1503, and the couple would have had about ten children together, though the exact number is in dispute. In 1533, King Henry set aside his wife Catherine of Aragon and married Lady Shelton's niece, the famous Anne Boleyn. His daughter with Catherine was declared illegitimate and demoted from her rank of princess. The Sheltons were given the job of supervising her household, and it was likely an unpleasant task. Henry was enraged by his daughter's refusal to obey him and accept that his marriage to her mother had been invalid and that she was a bastard. He commanded ever harsher treatment of the girl in order to break her pride and to force her to accept her new status. Lady Shelton had no choice but to obey direct orders from the king. But it seems Lady Shelton had no desire to pile on the cruelty. Perhaps she was simply a kind-hearted woman by nature, or perhaps Mary's bravery impressed her. She must have been torn between loyalty to her family and the feelings of affection she had for Mary. When the Duke of Norfolk chided Lady Shelton for being too lenient with Mary, Lady Shelton retorted that even if Mary had only been the bastard of a poor gentleman, that she would still deserve to be treated with kindness for her virtue and goodness. It would have taken considerable courage for Lady Shelton to stand up to Norfolk, who was the highest-ranked peer in the land. When Princess Elizabeth was born, Mary was ordered to serve the infant as a maid, and life became an ever-constant battle of wills. Mary refused to answer to any title other than princess and would not participate in any situation which indicated her status was lesser than her sister's. But Henry was equally determined. When he learned that Mary ate in her rooms, he ordered that she should be forced to go to the great hall and be seated with the other servants. Mary had to obey that order, but she mixed in what defiance she could. She would go to the hall, but she refused to eat from a plate that was placed lower than the one set for her sister. The stress and irregular diet caused her to fall ill, which the king seems to have seen as malingering. Though Queen Anne Boleyn is often blamed for the harsh treatment Mary endured, Chapuis is clear that the orders came from Henry, who called his daughter his worst enemy in the world, and said that he believed her behavior was designed to create conspiracies against him. He commanded ever closer surveillance of his daughter to ensure that no messages could get to her. He ordered that she'd be hidden from the public because people would cheer for her whenever she appeared, and the maids who were supporting her in her obstinacy be dismissed. It left Mary friendless in a hostile household, headed by Lady Shelton, who enforced the king's decrees 
with reluctance. Chapuis, for his part, tried to exert whatever power he had at court on Mary's behalf, warning Lady Shelton of dire consequences if anything happened to Mary. He wrote that Lady Shelton continually implored Mary with hot tears to give in to her father's demands. That she wept while begging the princess certainly implies Lady Shelton had a lot of emotions involved in this situation. Queen Anne Boleyn's power at court began to wane, and according to tradition, she feared that Henry's attention was being drawn away by a young woman from an enemy faction. To try to lure him back, or at least minimize the damage a mistress could cause, she pushed forward her cousin, Lady Shelton's daughter, Madge Shelton. The funny thing about Madge Shelton is that we're not entirely sure that she exists. The evidence certainly seems to suggest it, but some scholars think Madge and her sister Mary are the same person. In any case, this situation might have caused strife between Lady Shelton and Queen Anne, who was actively encouraging Madge's ruin in order to keep the king favorable to the Boleyn interests. In late 1535, Anne Boleyn became pregnant again and wrote a letter to Lady Shelton. We know that Anne had been corresponding frequently with Lady Shelton about Princess Elizabeth's care, but none of those letters survive. The only reason we know the contents of this letter is because Princess Mary found it left behind in the chapel and hastily copied it for the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis. In it, Anne begged Lady Shelton not to put any pressure on Mary for Anne's sake. If she had a son, she said, she knew what would happen to Mary. Likely, this referred to plans to marry the girl off to a lowly but loyal courtier, who would have had a decent enough lineage, but never be able to finance a rebellion against the crown. But Mary and Chapuis thought it meant something far more sinister. But Queen Anne lost her baby, and soon after was arrested and sent to the tower. Lady Shelton is thought to be one of the ladies chosen to guard the doomed queen. Ladies who were specifically chosen because they were known to be hostile towards her. It's possible Lady Shelton still resented the queen for pushing her daughter into the king's path and that the affair or rumors of an affair had damaged her reputation. But over the next two weeks, her emotions toward the queen may have changed. Witnesses reported that the ladies with the queen on the scaffold wept like they were heartbroken and afterwards guarded the queen's remains to prevent her from being disrespectfully treated by the soldiers of the tower. They risked the king's wrath to see her decently buried without permission. Once again, Lady Shelton may have been showing great courage to do what she saw as her duty, to do what she thought was right. After Queen Anne's death, Mary must have thought that her suffering was at an end. But for a time, things only got worse as Henry sent commissioners to threaten and bully Mary until she finally capitulated and signed the confession Henry wanted. Not long afterward, she was able to leave for her own household again. Princess Elizabeth was now a bastard and the child in disgrace with the king. Sir John wrote to Cromwell to get clarifications on the instruction for her care saying that he understood Elizabeth was to be kept in seclusion and out of the eyes of the public, as Mary had been before. He reminded Cromwell that the household hadn't received its budget. 
Elizabeth's governess, Lady Bryan, gives us another view of the situation, revealing a house in disorder, and no one knowing how much ceremony little Elizabeth was to be treated with, or how to get new clothing for the child since she'd outgrown everything her mother had provided for her. Lady Bryan noted that Elizabeth was allowed to dine in the Great Hall and was being given whatever appealed to her for dinner, which wasn't meat for a child of her age. Not long afterward, Elizabeth's household was reorganized and the Sheltons were released from their duties. They returned to their estate, Shelton Hall, in Norfolk. Three years later, Sir John died. Princess Mary helped ease the financial strain of Lady Shelton's widowhood by granting her a pension, so she must have held no resentment from the days when the Sheltons were in charge of her. She also sent gifts to the Sheltons' daughters from time to time. It's claimed that Princess Elizabeth fled occasionally to Shelton Hall for refuge after her sister became queen. The church in Norfolk has a pew they call Princess Elizabeth's Pew, and some stories even claim Elizabeth hid in the bell tower. But there seems to be little support to the story. Elizabeth's movements as princess were closely watched. The other Anne Boleyn lived on the periphery of one of the most famous families in English history— and had a hand in the upbringing of two queens. She seems to have been a kind woman with the courage to stand up for what she thought was right. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.